There we go. If you would, take your Bibles and head over to the book of Titus, and then we're going to 1 Thessalonians. But just as you're turning and getting those notes, let's run through a few things. Name a reason people get rid of an old family heirloom. Why would you get rid of something that's a, that's a family, considered a family heirloom? It's taking up space. Anything else? It's exp- you want to get the money or want to get rid of it? You want, you want the money? Yeah, okay. Like a picture with no name on the back? You sell it. Get rid of it. Okay. Any other reasons you get rid of these things? <laughs> Moving, family fight, too much stuff, need money, divorce, it's ugly, you don't like it, and it's broken. Here we go. Other reasons. Name a place nowadays where teens spend most of their time. On the phone? Computer? That's it? <laughs> The mall, their car. Good answers. Here we go. Work, mall, friends' home, on the phone, on the internet, school. Number one was rumor in bed. Name of chore most people do just once a week. Cut the grass. Dishes once a week. (laughs) What's that? Bachelors. Bachelors, that's what it is. I do it once a week whether we need it or not, right? That's a, I don't even do once a week. Um, what else do you have? Clothes. What's that? What the kids don't do, then you end up doing? Okay. Here's what we got. A chore most people do once a week. Mow the lawn, take out the garbage, clean the house, laundry, grocery shopping, and number one was church. That's a, that's a chore. That's an absolute chore for some. Name something that breaks down. <laughs> yeah. The washer, the dryer, your husband, uh, your car. What else? A lawnmower. Here you go. The mower, the washer, dryer, the appliances, foreign relations, communication. We are getting serious. The computer, your body, and car. Husband wasn't specified in there. Name something you always keep plugged in. A lamp, a refrigerator. I think they're both up here. Phone, TV. Mic. Okay. Baby monitor, computer, headphones, fridge, lamp, phone, computer, number one was the TV. Name a fruit you eat in the morning. An apple, banana, orange, orange, grapefruit, I think grapefruit's number one. Raisins, peach, melon, orange, apple, strawberries, grapefruit, oh, banana was number one, sorry. Name a liquid in your kitchen that you hope no one drinks accidentally. The Drano, the dish soap. What's that? Vinegar is up there. Dirty water should be up there, yeah. Cleaning products, bacon grease, soy sauce, cooking oil, vinegar, and number one was soaps. Uh, let's see. Name a reason you might be late for church. The kids? <laughs> you don't have to explain. Just say kids. Yeah. Overslept. Which makes no sense because I give you a chance to sleep when you're here, right? So you don't have to sleep at home. Flat tire? Okay. 
just moving so a, a train in Lebanon you got to say train slow drivers bathroom tied up too long at home kids last minute potty break couldn't find your Bibles the trains the car problems the traffic and number one you got up late name an evil character in the Bible Satan's going to be up there Jezebel should be up there I think Judas is up there I think Cain is up there I don't think Haman's up there. Evil character. Don't think Herod is. Got any others? Judas is. Cain, Goliath, Pontius Pilate. Oh, Ahab. Ahab, Jezebel. Judas Iscariot, Antichrist. Okay, evil character, Antichrist, which we'll be talking about next week. Satan, and let's get into what we want to talk about today. We're in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 to get started. In Titus 2 we read in verse 13 these words, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. The point in verse 3 is Paul is, when he uses the wording that he uses here, it's the comment is while looking for. And his point is that right now at this moment he is looking for the Lord's return as he is writing to Titus. He talks about that Lord's return in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. And let's just read the text if you jump there again. Most of you know this and many of you have memorized it. But let's remind ourselves again. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant, he says. Brethren, concerning them which have died or fallen asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. His point is that there are people who have died in the church, and they're wondering what's happening to these people who have passed away. Have, have they missed the Lord's return? Well, if the Lord were to come back, would, he, would they be left out? and not enjoy the kingdom. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep or who are dead in Christ will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that, um, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. The point is what he's talking about is that first phase of the Lord's return. That the Lord's going to come back, and he could come back, as Paul said, any moment. He's expecting it. He says, we who are alive and remain. It's a time when Jesus, as we just read, comes to the clouds, calls up the dead in Christ first, those who have died since the time of the, the beginning of the church, their bodies will be caught up into heaven, united with their spirit, and then who, we who are alive and remain, our bodies will be taken from this earth, and we'll be changed or resurrected, glorified, whatever words you want to use, they're all biblical, and that event will take place where we meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll return to the Lord, or with the Lord, to heaven to be with Him. Now we're We've been talking about that event, and for some, they think it's almost too phenomenal, too um, unrealistic. And the point is, he has said in several passages, if this weren't so, I would have told you. This is by the word of the Lord. This isn't something Paul's making up. This is something that God has spoken about. Now, we've been mentioning, we were talking about this event last week, and we said there's different, different interpretations of this. There are some who are um, Bible students who say, well, when this happens, he'll only take part of us who are alive and remain. And the only ones who will, he will take are those who are faithful to the Lord, who are right with the Lord, right with one another. He's not going to take everyone. And so they base that upon 
that idea of the faithfulness is encouraged in Scripture and that we don't want to be ashamed when the Lord comes. And I think it's a false interpretation because there's multiple passages that talk about Paul writing to the Corinthians and both First and Second Corinthians he makes comments about we all are going to be before the Lord. And those people are not the most spiritual of people. Remember the Corinthians had a lot of a lot of spiritual battles. And he says, yet we're going to be standing before the Lord. In fact, when he talks about the judgment of Christians, he said that your life is going to be judged, but you might lose everything as far as what your works were. They might be lost, burned up in the fire, but you will suffer loss, yet so be saved as by fire. And so I don't think that a concept fits scripture that only a certain group or there are some who even teach this. There are some who are in the uh, history of church. There are some who say their church group and only their church group. Um, in, uh, in circles, in the Baptist uh, circles historically, there are groups that call themselves Baptist briders. Their concept is that the only ones who are going to be raptured are those who are the uh, part of a Baptist type of a church. Uh, you know, I don't believe that Scripture teaches that, that it's just one element or only the most spiritual, but rather it's all who are truly born again will be raptured. There is another two different types of theories that go along with it. They're similar but a little bit different. And they basically deal with that we are going to be raptured after we've experienced part of the tribulation. If you're this morning you're not sure what the tribulation is. It is uh, what the Bible talks about, and we will next week. The Bible talks about a period of seven years in the near future where it's going to be the worst time in all of history. Jesus described it as the time when there is wars and rumors of wars and there's famines and pestilences. And he's the one who made the statement it's the worst time in all of human history. And so that seven-year period is called the tribulation, Jacob's trouble, a variety of other names that we'll be getting into next week and the week after. The, um, the, the horrible part of that, some will say, well, we're going to live during part of that. The church will be raptured maybe halfway through. Or Revelation chapter 6, where verse 17 says that the wrath of the Lord is come. They say, well, we'll get raptured right before the period of the tribulation that is the wrath of the Lord. And it intensifies all the way through the tribulation. And there are some who suggest that the wrath part of it is only the second half or in the seal, um, in the uh, trumpet and bowl judgments. Um, and and uh, that concept is the church, born-again believers, will live during part of the rapture. So it's mid-trib or pre-wrath. And again, we're going to comment that there's several reasons why I don't believe this. The imminency of Jesus Christ. The passage that they quote, that they say Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 17, in that text, what he's talking about is he says in there, that um, the great day of wrath has already come. In the original language, it's not, okay, it's about to come. In the original language, in describing the seals, it has already come. And so my understanding is the day of wrath is the entire tribulation is a period of wrath and judgment. As well, we're going to see in a few moments, in Revelation chapter 4, there's a chronology given of the book of Revelation, and it seems, that the, it, it seems very apparent that the church is in heaven before the 
tribulation, tribulation even starts. In fact, why don't we turn there? We're going to get there in the next few minutes anyway. Revelation 4 and 5 that we're going to talk about. And while you're turning, let me give this last, uh, this last idea that is given by some church groups. They say that what will happen is uh, that, that the, everyone will live through the tribulation period and then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will come to earth, take up those who are saved okay, his bride, return to heaven, and then come back down for the second coming. So this is called post-trib, that Jesus would return and rapture people at the end of the tribulation. The reason that they do this, they say this, is a couple things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, at the last trump, we shall be changed. And they say, well, the last trump is obviously the end of the trumpet judgments. And so therefore, it has to be that the last trump must be referring to this seven trumpet judgments that are in the very last part of the book, uh, of the period of tribulation. Therefore, we must be in heaven, uh, must be on earth and the, until that last trump. Um, to refute that is last trump could be the last trump for the church and the last trump judgment is for Israel and do, showing the distinction between the two. And so that's, that doesn't seem to be a persuasive argument that just because it says the last trump. Nor does Matthew chapter 24 where he talks about the Lord's returning. Two shall be ta in the field, one shall be taken, the other one left. Uh, they will be grinding, they'll be working, and the idea that some say, well, that's a rapture passage, some shall be taken. But if you look at the context of that passage, those who are taken away are taken away to judgment. Because he uses the illustration that like in the days of Moah, uh, Noah, Noah, excuse me, in the day of Noah, that some were taken away to judgment through the flood. And so in making it a parallel uh, and consistent instruction of taking away, when he's talking there, they'd be taken away to judgment, not to rescue or not to safety. And so again, we would look and say, there's several reasons why it just doesn't make any sense. And it seems to be a faulty interpretation. Going to a number of passages, and last week we ended up right here. We said that, the, uh, that our understanding is that the Lord will come back and rapture us before the beginning of those seven years, a pre-trib rapture. And the reason we say that is starting with Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. If you look at that passage, we're, we already jumped ahead to chapter 4, but if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, this is where we talked last week, that he's talking to the church uh, and he's making comment that you shall be saved or kept out of a worldwide trial or tribulation that will come at a set period of time, the, the hour. And so we understand that they've already talked about to the believers about the idea of the tribulation. Uh, Paul's already written that to a number of churches in 2 Thessalonians in particular, which we're going to turn to shortly. But he talks about that idea that, that there's going to be uh, a worldwide tribulation. It's going to be for a set period of time. And he's telling the believers here, you're going to be kept out of it not through it. Literally in the original language, you're going to be kept out of it. Now that passage seems to suggest that what is happening is that the believers are not going to live in the tribulation period. Now uh, let me jump ahead for just a moment. You're holding your finger in Revelation chapter 4 and I'm going to get there. But let me go to 2 Thessalonians first. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is an important text as well. If you want to keep your finger in Revelation 4, but go to 2 Thessalonians 2. In 2 Thessalonians, he's writing to the believers and he's trying to explain the sequence of events about end times. Again, there's a lot of questions by the believers like there were in, uh, in when he wrote the first letter about what happens in the future. And so they, they were concerned about their loved ones who passed away and if the Lord returned, would they be caught up or, or did they miss the kingdom? He's written about that in 1 Thessalonians. Now in 2 Thessalonians, what's happening is they're starting to go through persecution. They're in they're, you know, what we would call the imperial persecutions. There was 10 of them in the first 300 years of the church age where the Roman Caesars or emperors, they were doing the official persecution against them. And you have like Nero and, and uh, a number of these others who have introduced a series of, of imperial uh, persecutions that were very intense. And these are the stories that you read of, that you hear about how the Christians were uh, slaughtered in the arena, they were, lions were let loose on them, they were uh, dipped in oil and put on skewers themselves, on poles, on crosses, and then they were burned alive to light up the parties. And it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. A terrible time for the early church, a huge amount of persecution. They're, they're in the beginning of some of this persecution era, and they're wondering are we living in the period called tribulation? Is Antichrist Nero? Is Antichrist one of the emperors who is so opposed to Christianity? And so Paul is writing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to try to explain to them some of the sequence and help them to understand their times they're living in and some of the Bible prophecy. So we read in 2 Thessalonians, we're going to jump right into the text, jump down to about verse 3, and let's get the flow of the passage. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. We're talking about that, that what he would call the very last days, okay? For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholds or keeps back, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets... Now, does anybody have a different rendering? in your Bible. He who now, my King James says, lets will let. He who now hinders, restrains, okay, and that's the unfortunate part of, of history, language history. The word letteth in uh, Old King James was, could be interpreted holding back or restraining. The word literally is withholding or restraining. So we would have to read it this way and uh, as we go through the passage. For the mystery of iniquity is already at work. In other words, evil's already starting its process and working this way. Only who, he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this God uh, shall give them so for this cause God shall give them strong delusion. The main character he's talking about He's already referred to him. In, he's called the man of sin, 
the son of perdition. He is described as wanting to be worshipped as God in verse 4. He will sit in the temple of God and claim to be God, verse 4. He is called in, the, in verse 8, the wicked one, and he's going to be consumed by the Lord with the spirit of the Lord's mouth at the coming of the Lord. Him whose coming is this, this wicked one is working the working works of Satan with powers and signs and lying wonders. Who is that? It's Antichrist. Okay. Now, see, so you got the flow of it. They're thinking Antichrist is Nero doing the persecution. And he is saying, not yet. Not yet. There's one coming in the future who's going to be worse. And so he's clarifying it for him. As he clarifies it for him, he gives us a lot of insight into the timetable. So he's saying this Antichrist is going to come and he's going to be destroyed by Christ in the future, etc., etc. But it says in verse 6, and now we know what is keeping him back from being revealed in his time. In other words, before Antichrist is revealed, certain things have to happen. And he basically says there's two events that have to take place before Antichrist is revealed. And he gives the two events. He says that there's going to be a great apostasy. There's going to be a, a huge shift away from any type of, of acceptance of truth. And he says that this man of sin, before he can be revealed, something else has to happen. He who now restrains must be taken out of the way. Okay? Now, let, let's stop right here. When is Antichrist revealed? What is, what is the thing, according to prophecy, the event that reveals who Antichrist is? The signing of the treaty with Israel, according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. He will sign a treaty with Israel. That treaty with Israel begins the last seven years. And so that's the, that's the signing of it. He's saying something has to happen. Uh, that's the revealing of Antichrist. Something has to happen before the signing of the covenant. There's going to be a great apostasy, okay? And after that great apostasy, there's got to be a removal of those, uh, of, of someone or someones who are holding back evil. Who could that be? There's two possibilities here. It could be the Holy Spirit or the church or both. Okay, we know that the working of the Holy Spirit is to provide conviction of sin. That the Spirit, um, as in the book of Genesis, that they strives with men to try to keep evil down. We also know that the Holy Spirit lives where? Within us right now, okay? And how long is he living within us? Forever, okay? So we also know that we have an obligation as the church to be what to the world? The salt and the light, okay? So in that respect, do we have an influence upon the world to try to expose and to resist evil? Yes, yes, okay? So in this text, he's talking about someone or someones who are going to be taken out of the way. Well, if the Holy Spirit is taken off the earth, what about us? Do you remember, we have the Holy Spirit living with us for how long? forever. So if the Holy Spirit departs from planet earth, we've got to go with him. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. If, um, if we are taken off the earth, 
the Holy Spirit's going with us as well because he's with us. Now, that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God cannot work on planet Earth and save souls, but the indwelling aspect of the Spirit is taken off of this Earth. And so he's making comment that he's saying in this text that before Antichrist is revealed by the signing of the covenant, there's going to be a removal of that which is holding back the real spread of evil. Oh, by the way, remember he said the mystery of, of iniquity is already at work? He's not saying that, that our presence means there, no, there is no evil at all. Is there evil on the earth while we are here? Yeah, 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 we see it every day. Listen to the news. That's all you have to do. But what he's saying that this real iniquity really launching itself and going at full bore and full blast, there's, there's got to be removal of the restrainer. And so that would indicate to me that, hey, wait a minute, that restrainer that's got to be removed, first of all, is us slash the Holy Spirit or Holy Spirit slash us. There's got to be the rapture before the signing of the covenant, according to this text. That, that also fits with what we're talking about in this very same passage in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He says, you shall be saved from the wrath to come. Now that wrath could be hell, we understand. But in the context, he's talking about end times situations. And he makes it very clear, you are not appointed unto wrath. The church, the believers, are not supposed to live in that period when God's wrath is poured out, which is a huge description of the... Of the um, passages of, about the tribulation. If you go to the book of Revelation, which I want you to go back now to, chapters 4 and 5, in the book of Revelation, um, as you're turning there, just keep in mind that through the book of Revelation, starting with chapter 6, there is no mention at all of the church or the bride until the very end when all of a sudden the bride is in heaven and returns with the groom. So what we have is a book that is written starting with chapter 1 describing Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation are talking about churches. The, do you remember how many there are that he's writing to? The seven churches. This whole book is written to churches, to believers, to understand what's happening in the future. And it's interesting that he writes to churches, and then there's no mention of church, of the believers who are making up the church. And again, they're not mentioned in, in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20, basically, until the Lord returns or until the bride of Christ is shown to be in heaven. Otherwise, there's no mention of them at all. And which makes sense to me because most of the book of Revelation is focused on what's happening on earth as it is the wrath is pouring out of heaven. And if you go to chapter 4 and understand that there's something that happens in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation that I want to just point out that would again with these other evidences give clear indication altogether that we're talking about a pre-trib rapture. Go to chapter 4 of Revelation. He says in the beginning of chapter 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. I heard, as it were, the trumpet saying, Come up hither, and I will show you things that must, come here, must be hereafter. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne is in heaven. And he talks about who's sitting on the throne. Verse 3. He talks about his description with the rainbow, obviously, you know, talking about the Lord. Then he talks about a group of people. There were round about the throne 24 seats, okay, and upon the seats I saw... 24 elders sitting clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads what? This is, the same, this is not diadem. 
This is that same term used in several other epistles where he talks about the crowns that we as the church saints can earn. It is not diadem, but it is that laurel wreath. And he's talking in this verse that there are not, these aren't rulers, these aren't kings, these are individuals who have gained some type of award or reward or crown that you would get the same type of crown of glory, crown of righteousness that's talked about elsewhere. We'll see in a few moments. Then he talks about the thunders and the lightnings and he gives an indication, verses 6, 7, 8, look down and there's the singing, there's the beasts, the creatures, the angelic beings who are worshiping and giving glory. Look at verse 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever. And what do they do? With their crowns, what do they do? They cast them and they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things. So whoever those 24 are, they have received crowns and then they're casting them at his feet. And keep that in mind. This is the chronology of the book. Then all of a sudden, chapter 5, we start reading about a book that shows up, a book that has seven seals on it. And he talks about who's worthy to open the book, and this is where we get that song, Worthy is... Lamb, he talks about him. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of Judah, verse 5. And what a wonderful song that talks about worthy is the lamb and how great he is. And he talks about the worship of the beast in, who is in the midst of the elders and how they all worship him. I want you to jump down. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the 24 elders fell down, having every one of them harps, golden vials, and uh, that had aromas, and the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals. And they talk about how they have been redeemed by your blood. And look at verse 9. Some say this is Israel. Why does verse 9 say this, this can't be Israel? Because they're redeemed out of what? Every kindred, every tongue, every people, and every what? And every nation. That can't be Israel. Okay? These are people who, are, who have no set nation, but they have become redeemed individuals. And he goes on, he says, you have made us to be kings and priests. And then he go on, they worship some more. Which group of people are redeemed out of every class of people out of every nation. The church age, the church saints, the church saints. In the Old Testament, if you became a believer, what did you, have, what did you need to do to, to show your worship and your faith? You need to become a proselyte to Judaism. And so now in this age, he has said, go into how far? All the world and preach the gospel to every nation. Okay, so the people who are pictured here who are praising him along with the angelic beings who have the crowns are, as I understand in consistency with Scripture, this is the church. The church is in heaven worshiping, giving, having received their crowns and they're going to give him back the praise and the worship and then watch the chronology. They do the praising and then, what ha and then look at the, uh, the last verse. It says, and the four beasts said, Amen. The four and twenty elders fall down. They worshipped him. And I, verse, chapter 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard the noise of thunder. That's the beginning of the seal judgments. They start after the worship has taken place. 
They start after the crowns have been distributed. The, the chronology of the book of Revelation takes off once the, worship, the saints are in heaven and have been given their awards and their crowns. So it seems to me, to putting it all the scripture together, that there's going to be the rapture before the tribulation gets underway, before the signing of the covenant, the revealing of Antichrist, our judgment and rewards will be all taking place before the tribulation gets fully underway. And we'll do that worship and restore. And so we'll be in heaven before the tribulation. How long before it starts, I don't know. You don't either. But we're there in this chronological order. We're there before the tribulation gets underway. Let me give you some other thoughts. The church of bride is in chapter 19. It talks about the bride has made herself ready. Already she's ready for the wedding feast. And that occurs right before his coming again. So there's been that period of time that the bride has been prepared and groomed, not to play with pun on words, but all ready to return with Christ. And that is at the end of the tribulation. So there's already been time for the bride to have been honored and the marriage feast to have been prepared and all those things already taking place before the second coming. So it's not the idea we're going to come after the tribulation. We're already clearly in heaven before that and preparation has been made. Just practical questions. If the church is left on planet earth during the tribulation, why does he have to all of a sudden get more witnesses? Why does he now have to have the prophets and the 144,000? And then even sending angels to do the witnessing, declaring the gospel. The reason that there is this influx of new witnesses is because the church who has been given the job of, of carrying the gospel for the last 2,000 years is gone. And so now there's an incorporation of a new group to give out the gospel. Give you another thought. When we're supposed to comfort one another, and remember their, their difficulty is the idea that their loved ones have passed away and they're concerned about will our loved ones, will we see them again? Will our loved ones miss the kingdom? And he's saying no they won't. They will be raptured first and they, then you'll be reunited with them. To comfort one another, it's really tough to say hey I want you to comfort one another when this is what you have to look forward to, persecution and death. And that's his context of First and Second Thessalonians. The imminency, while looking for, we who are alive and remain. The idea that we'll get into in the book of Daniel, very clearly the tribulation period is the last seven years of a time that he says is, um, is de and I'll quote the, the phrase, the time that is determined upon your people. He says that to Daniel. Who are Daniel's people? Okay? It's Jacob's inheritance. It is the Jewish people. And so when he starts talking about that 490 years of the 70 weeks of Daniel, that, he, that includes the tribulation, that is a Jewish time period, not a time period that we are talking about. Uh, and so put that all together, and you, you, it seems the most, the most apparent and obvious conclusion with multiple consistent passages is we're not going to see the tribulation. That the, the great tribulation, we will be raptured before that time. Now, there are some who say, now wait a minute, 
The biggest, strongest argument, which I, I struggle when you, you say a stronger argument than Scripture, but there are some who say, well, if you read church fathers who are from that very beginning of church history, who could have sat at the feet of the apostles, and so there's, there's some merit given to this, some of those very early leaders, they, they, and the argument is, they believed that there was no, no rapture, they didn't even think about a rapture, they didn't talk about a rapture, and the whole argument is this, the idea of the church being raptured didn't show up until the 1800s under a fellow with Dar Darby and several others. And so it's a very modern point of view. It wasn't held by the early church fathers who would have had personal opportunity to ask questions and get further information from the apostles or those who were trained by them. And so there are those who put great stock in church history and they say the early church fathers didn't talk about a rapture, they didn't talk about missing out on the tribulation. And so this is their big quote. And I go and say, now wait a minute, why would you say that? Just, there's several pages I could quote, I'm not going to. But I'm going to start, Shepherd of Hermes, he's writing, he's living between 95 and 150. And he writes this statement, Go therefore and tell the elect of the Lord about his mighty deeds, and say to them that this beast is the t in the great tribulation, he is coming. If then you prepare yourselves and repent with your heart and turn to the Lord, it is possible you will escape his presence. Wait a minute, he's a church father, often quoted, and he's talking about not being here before the beast shows up, which, by the way, the beast could be Antichrist, okay, okay. Here's another one. His name is Victorin, uh, Victor, Victorinus, okay. He is writing in the 200. The heavens withdrew as a scroll for the heaven to be rolled away. That is, the church shall be taken away. Every mountain and island will remove from their place intimate that the last persecution that men will face will come upon them, but the church will be removed, avoiding all this persecution. Okay, and so I could read on. There's Ephraim of Nisibus, and there's Brother Dalcino, and there's Joseph Mead, Increase Mathers, who are more recent. There's a whole slew of them that we could be talking about. Those who say that these early church fathers didn't believe in a kingdom, they didn't believe in a rapture. Well, just to give you a list. Papias, Clement of Rome, Shepherd of Hermes, Ignatius, Barnabas, the Didache, Justin Martyr, Epistle of Barnabas, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they all talk about it in their section on eschatology. They talk about the idea of the church being taken away before the tribulation period. And so those who make those statements, I wonder why they would make inaccurate statements based on church history. Oh, I, I get it a few of their favorite church fathers didn't mention it. So because this person over here didn't mention it, therefore nobody mentioned it. This is not true. That's not historically accurate. To say that this is a more modern doctrine, it, that's just wrong. It was an ancient doctrine held by those who are in the early church uh, era. So, uh, giving you all that, we come to this conclusion. We're going to be raptured before the tribulation takes place. Now, here's a couple questions that some of you have asked, okay? Where have the souls been of those who, who are dead before the bodies are raptured? Okay? Loved ones that we know that have died, where have their souls gone waiting the rapture or the resurrection of their bodies? Okay, how do you know they're in heaven? Absent from the body present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 8, 9, 10, 11. And it, it deals with, that's part of that, that whole 
passage talking about we're going to be before the Lord. So we know that they're taken to heaven. So those individuals who have passed away, they're with the Lord right now in their spirit form. And I remind you, the spirit form looks like you, yeah, you said me, okay? Those who have passed, because remember, when, when people saw Moses, they knew it was Moses, okay? Moses was in spirit form. When people like the rich man and Lazarus, when they communicated, they had visage like you and I have, because they even talk about his lips, his fingers. In the spirit form, does the spirit... I'm going to use the term body. Does that spirit body that's either in heaven or hell, does it have feelings? Yeah, he could feel the pain he could, or, the, or the comfort. Does that spirit body have memory? Yes, because he remembered his five brothers and remembered his lifetime on planet Earth. Um, do they still have an awareness of some of the things that are going on on planet Earth? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Remember in Revelation chapter 6 that when you, you can look at it where those who are being martyred are under the throne in heaven, they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our persecution, our death? They are aware that it hasn't taken place yet and there's a knowledge that they remembered what they experienced in their death. And so you put it all together and the souls who pass away, they don't go into what some suggest. They go into a soul sleep state, basically a hibernation until the rapture takes place. That's not true, okay? When you leave your body, you go immediately in the presence of the Lord. You're enjoying the comforts of heaven and all those things. Your body will be renewed and be rejoined to your body so that your body and spirit will be reunited at the rapture and you'll be able to return to heaven, which is able to handle physical beings. It handles Jesus. It handles Enoch. It handles Elijah, who are in their physical form. And uh, then eventually that, that beautiful heaven will come down to planet Earth. Uh, question, what happens on Earth when all the saints suddenly disappear? Okay, let, let's portray. At 1 o'clock this afternoon, the rapture takes place. We who are born again disappear. Okay, could that mean that your waitress is coming right about that time with your platter and you take off. What is she going to think? Okay, now that's not a bad one, right? That just means you, you, know, you left her stuck with the bill. But where does it get hairy? Where does it get real complicated? Okay, planes, cars, transportation, surgeries, um, you know, crane operators. You know, when people are busy doing things and all of a sudden they're gone and there's nobody managing whatever that is, that, that in and of itself would be horrific, would it not? When the saints are removed, all of a sudden all the, the instruments, the mechanical devices, all those things that people are relying upon, you know, all of a sudden they're gone. I remember one time I was painting in my house, the, the, the old house I had, the peak of the, the house, real high at one spot. It was probably about as high as that roof there. And I had an extension ladder. I had roped it to the inside of the house, and Deb was supposed to hold it on the inside. And I climbed up, and I had one of the boys uh, stand at the bottom and keep it braced. And I'm up there, and I'm doing one of these things, you know, stretching, you know, as tall as I could on the ladder, and all of a sudden I felt this whole ladder go like this. And I looked down, 
and the two boys are kicking at each other. The one is holding the ladder, the other one is coming up and he knows that he can't go far. So he's throwing things at him, kicking at him, and the one holding the ladder is kicking him away. And all of a sudden he couldn't resist. He just left. And it's like, I mean, it was bad enough shaking, but now there's nobody holding it. And he disappeared. And it was, that moment was just panic in my mind that all of a sudden he's gone and I'm yelling and they're running around the house chasing each other. And, uh, and I didn't dare come down, though I really wanted to get down. Yeah. I didn't dare come down because I wanted somebody to hold ladder before I come down. So, think about it. Whoever's holding, you know, you're holding somebody's ladder, all of a sudden you're gone. What about that poor person? There's going to be absolute chaos all over the place when it takes place. Does the rapture kick off the tribulation? We often say, well, the rapture begins the tribulation. Technically, absolutely, per, per you know, uh, specifics in Scripture, it doesn't. What kicks off the tribulation? The signing of the covenant. The rapture could take place days, hours, minutes, or weeks before the tribulation starts. There's enough time between the uh, rapture and begin the tribulation for the, the, uh, the awards to be given and to be given back to Jesus Christ. What signs need to be fulfilled prior to the rapture taking place? None. None. Now, there are signs before the tribulation, okay? That which restrains has to be taken away. There has to be a great apostasy. That's it, Okay? And, oh, by the way, the, the unstated sign, but it had to happen, Israel had to become a nation in order to sign a covenant, a treaty. So that took place already. So a few of those, those understood signs are already in place and being fulfilled, but there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing before the rapture. Okay, it could be any moment at any time. When we are raptured, then we go to heaven. And this next event is described. You want to take your Bibles and head over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just get into this section, just a few minutes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about this on several different passages of Scripture. He talks about what's the Bema seat. There's another term used for this in your English Bible. The word is Bema in the original. What's the other term that's often used for this? The Bema seat of Christ or the, the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, this is not the great white throne. Don't, that's why I want you to be very specific. This judgment, the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat of Christ is for the believers. We are told in scriptures, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is the passage that we were just referring to a moment ago, uh, verse 6. Therefore we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted. The word accepted is not the idea of, okay, I'm going to let you be saved. It's the idea approved, okay, in, uh, of the Lord. For we must all appear before the, what's your Bible read? <clears throat> the judgment seat, literally it's a bima in the original. Uh, the bima seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, interesting passage. Lots of information there. Now, this isn't the only passage that talks about judgment. There are several others that talk about believers being judged. In the ancient world, just to make sure we're, and by the way, A&E, whenever I put it up, it's ancient Near East. It's referring to that part of the world. Um, they would have a raised platform. It could be big, it could be small. They would call it a bima. That's where the judge for the races would sit. That's where the judge would sit for ruling civil cases. And so the bima 
is the place that literally meant somebody's going to judge, somebody's going to evaluate. And it came to be called the judging place or the Bema place was a common term. There's, a pa there's multiple passages that talk about believers having a Bema or a judgment seat uh, occasion where they're going to be talking before the Lord. Now in Luke 4, 14, 14 says that there's going to be the resurrection of the just and the judge, unjust, he talks about both, unto a judgment. Okay, and so he refers that that everyone, the just as well as the unjust, will be resurrected. Doesn't say when, and in the sequence at the same time, doesn't do that. Just says that there's going to be a resurrection, and then there's going to be judgment following that. And so we have in 1 Corinthians 3, which we need to turn to, holding your finger here, 1 Corinthians 3 is the other passage that gives us information about this bema, about the judgment. 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, interesting text, he is talking about how you are God's building, you are God's farm work, you are God's husbandry. And then he uses that imagery about how God is building up and building in your life, and he makes this comment in verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Okay? By the way, does Jesus ever use foundation and building as a picture when he was preaching? Yes, he did. The wise man builds his house upon a rock, okay? And the foolish man builds his on the sand, okay? What was he referring to in that passage? Building on the foundation of him, his teachings, okay? And then building upon it with your life, or not building upon it. And he used that imagery. Well, Paul picks up with that same imagery, and he talks about the idea under the inspiration of the Spirit that you're building, and your foundation has to be Jesus Christ. He's got to be where you start, okay? You put your faith. You put everything upon Christ. Then he goes on and says in verse 12, Now, if any man build there upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone. Now, when you put any man there, don't think it's universal. In context, he's already talking about people who have put their faith in Christ. That's the previous verse, right? So if any man build upon this foundation, in other words, he's put his faith in Jesus Christ. So any believer is the concept. So if any believer build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he's going to receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you. So he's made this statement about a judgment in a couple different texts. Romans chapter 14 is the text where believers are judging one another. And he says, stop it. Don't you know that we are going to give account of ourselves to Jesus Christ? So that idea of judgment, of believers being judged for their, for their Christian labors, it's, it's replete in scriptures. Jesus used that concept of rewarding people uh, in a judgment aspect, which I think is primarily written and given to the Jewish saints, but in application and in, in follow-up, that's used as well as even to us believers, that there's going to be rewards given for what we do in the kingdom and job assignments. Now, what happens here is this building, again, we mentioned that Jesus used that building concept. So they're using comparative illustrations. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul here, talking about how we build our lives. And understand why he's writing this. The Corinthians were not careful how they were building. The Corinthians have a real problem. They have struggles in their church, such as um, um, who they're going to listen to. 
such as how they're going to treat one another. They have problems with, with pushing away the poor and the rich being, being upon. They have problems with, I have the gifts of the Spirit, you don't. And so they've, they've created this animosity within the body of Christ. They have some immorality going on, some impurity in their dating relationships. And he talks about all these issues that are going on in the church, including false doctrines about the resurrection that he corrects in chapter 15. And so he's talking about, you've got to get your act together. And he uses it with the idea of you, people need, you're carnal, but you need to become spiritual. And in doing that, one of the incentives he gives is you're going to have, in the future, you're going to have to give an account. Now that accounting that he talks about is building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Like any building, you need a good foundation. So what you're laboring for the Lord and how you're living for the Lord, you have to have a good foundation or it's going to collapse. This has got to be using the right material. Okay, um, we can go back to the three little pigs. Okay, that you need the right materials to be able to withstand, the, be able to be strong, not just a good foundation, but also the right materials. And he talks about we have options gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. We can choose. Okay, that he gives us that option. And then he's talking about you're going to be examined. It's going to be made manifest. Like any other building program, there's going to be an inspection that's going to take place. And he talks about how the, he is going to be the inspector, come in and look and say, did you build the right way? Did you live the right way? In the sense of, did you do service for me? Once you were saved, how did you, how did you live? Were you focused on gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble? The difference between gold, silver, and precious stone and wood, hay, stubble is what? One lasts, one doesn't. It's very, it's very temporary. And he talks about, now, in, in, the, in the Second Corinthians passage, and we'll, let me close with this. Some will say, when I look at this, this is an important, we will receive what we did in our body according to what we have done, whether it be good or bad. So Jesus is going to judge us for if we sinned or didn't sin. The wording that he uses there in 2 Corinthians 5 is not whether it's moral or immoral that is good or bad that way. He's talking, the literal rendering of the words is, is it profitable or is it unprofitable? It's not a moral standard, but it's values. It's did you do things that were worthwhile or did you do things that were kind of worthless? We're not talking sinful, morally wrong, but what did you focus on? Did you focus on things that would last, or did you focus on things that were very temporary? And so the good, bad there, be very careful that you don't make it a moral judgment over your sin, because if he judges us for our sin, then what must be the answer? Okay, it's got to be separation. It's got to be damnation. So it can't be a judgment for sin. It's a judgment for was our service focused on things that were really, did, did our labors focus on things that were lasting, eternal, or were they very, very temporary? Were we focused on just things that we would enjoy here and now? Not necessarily evil, but things that were very temporary. Let's pick up with that next week when we get back to this. Thanks, get the folk next to you. Alert and alarm that uh, where that we're going to be going to worship in a few moments.